This is one of the pressing issues. How do we make decisions in our lives? How do we make moral decisions? How do we make halachic decisions? And, uh, and thank God we have uh, paradigms from the past, such as halacha kapetilel. And, uh, and we, we want to unpack a little bit of the wisdom we have from Chazal and from our tradition to think about not only the, the current moments and the future, and as it relates to ethics and justice as well. And so we're thrilled to have Rabbi Avi Herzog here from Israel, who received his smicha, his rabbinic ordination from Hebrew Theological College, the Skoki Yeshiva, uh, and a master's of Hebrew literature from its university department. He served as a congregational rabbi in Milwaukee, Chicago, and Cincinnati, has been a scholar in residence in several communities in the US, Canada, and Israel. He and his wife made Aliyah in the summer of 2019 and reside in Givat Zev. Uh, I have had the great opportunity to learn from Ravavi uh, many, on many occasions in writing and, um, and, and, and verbally. And so I, I'm sure you'll enjoy this session as well. Feel free to write questions and thoughts in the chat. Um, and after about 35, 40, 45 minutes of presentation, we'll have the chance to open up the conversation as well. Thank you so much, Ravavi, for being here. You're, you're on mute, Rabbi Avi. Okay, can you hear me now? Okay, I will once again uh, then thank um, Rabbi Shmuley for that very warm and unnecessary introduction. And thank you to both uh, Rabbi Shmuley and to, uh, to Eddie for bringing me on board um, to present a webinar tonight. Um, Shmuley, Rabbi Shmuley mentioned the word excitement, or maybe that was Eddie. The excitement is all mine. Um, maybe a little bit theirs, but really it is mine. Um, and I'm very excited to be sharing um, some words of Torah with you and um, some stories um, as we will see. As a complete and total aside, I just would like to mention that um, um, Rashmuli mentioned that we are in, uh, that I am, my, and my wife are in Eretz Israel. We are in Israel. We made Aliyah this coming summer or August will be two years. Um, I know it's not something that's easy. It's not something that's easy for us. And of course, I fully grasp that. I am not in the business of trying to convince anybody to make Aliyah. It's a personal decision, but all I can tell you, it, it is 100 plus percent worth it to wake up every single day in Eretz Yisrael. There is simply no other way uh, to put it than to be blessed with that opportunity. Okay, let's dive right in. My title for tonight, as you all saw, and as Rav Shmuley mentioned, is V'alacha Kebetilel, a quote we often find in the Talmud going back to the Mishnah, the earliest work of the Talmud, that the school of law, when it comes to a debate between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, they were counterparts as it were, almost always, with rare exception, the halacha, the Jewish law follows the opinion of Hillel. And the rest of my title is, and it's not completely accurate, the school of Hillel as a paradigm for halachic decision-making in modern times. In truth, to do justice to my talk tonight and to our sharing tonight, I would have had to make the title twice as long for it is really looking at Hillel as a paradigm for halachic decision-making and how we are to engage as ethical human beings in modern times. Let's keep that aside. In order to better understand the angle from which we are approaching this this evening, um, at least part of it, I would like to um, just begin with a quote from Rabbi Jacob J. Schachter. Rabbi Jacob J. Schachter 
is the uh, rabbinic scholar at the Center for the Jewish Future of Yeshiva University. And he was one of the contributors to um, a work um, that is entitled, excuse me, um, I don't have the work in front of me, so I sincerely apologize. I, okay, I just remembered, I apologize. The name of the work is Mitocha Ohel, literally from the tent, a metaphor, of course, from the world of the Beit Midrash, the world of the house of learning. We will be talking about Hillel tonight, who spent much of his time in the Beit Midrash. So the title of that book also is quite fitting. This is the closing paragraph of Rabbi Schachter's um, article that he contributed to that work. And he writes as follows. The essence, the substance of the teachings of Judaism need to be constant from one generation to the next. But the idiom, the style, the manner, the approach and mode of communication of that essence or that substance may, and for some must, change from one generation to the next. What was effective in the Middle Ages is not necessarily effective in the 21st century. What worked well in Eastern Europe will not necessarily work well in America. The message is the same, but the medium changes from time to time and from place to place. I have my own corollary, which I have added um, not only in terms of a follow-up to what Rav Schechter wrote, but to how I conduct myself in my approach to, to psak halacha, to halachic decision-making. And that is that, and really for all of us to understand how Torah operates, and that is that Torah and psak, or decision-making, remain constant, but their application to changes over time. And I would like to give you two examples from what may be termed the more yeshivish world, not necessarily the world in which, which I spend, I would say 99% um, of my time. Nonetheless, we are referring to one of the greatest halachic decisors of the 20th century, so much so that many of the great post-scheme or halachic decisors of Eretz Yisrael would not speak out on a certain issue until Rav Moshe Feinstein, and that's what I'm referring to, who lived on the Lower East Side of New York, this tiny little man, I understand he was under five feet tall, lived and spent his life or the second half of his life on the Lower East Side, and yet the post-scheme here in Eretz Yisrael would not move until he gave the green light for certain very controversial and very difficult issues. Once he gave the green light, then they felt comfortable to have that backing. And so I'm going to share with you two examples of what I'm referring to about how, or of how Rav Moshe Feinstein followed that exact path. And that is that the principles are always, the principles of Torah must be in place, but at the same time, their application changes. The first example is something that seems relatively simple, and that is the end time for Shabbat. It's, it's not so simple. If you're coming from a world where Shabbat ends at a later time than is ended by many people in your new country in America, Rav Moshe um, was uh, moved to America, I believe, when he was in his early 40s, maybe late 30s, and um, he had been observing the time that is known, um, the end time for Shabbat that is known as 72 minutes, which means 72 minutes after, after sunset. And in short, that's based on Rabbeinu Tam, on Rashi's grandchild, the way that he understood the passage in the Talmud in the Gemara that states that Shabbat ends Dalid Milin, which literally means four European, or not European, but four, let's say Babylonian, I should say miles, four Eastern, okay, miles 
after sunset. And so Rabbeinu Tam puts a meal at 18 minutes, 18 times four is 72. Rav Moshe felt very strongly that the earliest one may end Shabbat is 72 minutes after sunset. And then he moved to America. And the story goes that he walked outside one evening, he looked up at the sky, and at approximately, it's a round number, at approximately 50, 50, 50 minutes after sunset, he said, you know what? This is exactly how the sky looks back in my old country, back in my hometown at 72 minutes after sunset. And therefore, here in America, Shabbat may be ended at 50 minutes after sunset. No less than his relative, but Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik of fame of, of Boston fame and of Yeshiva University latched onto that. And even though his own synagogue ended Shabbat earlier, that became his public psak, his public um, decision as well. And when he counseled others to end Shabbat at 50 minutes after sunset, there are more lenient opinions. But if you think about it, what Avmosha was doing was turning the Gemara on its head and saying that Dalin Milin, for Milin, is only a marker. It is not prescriptive. In other words, one does not have to wait how long it takes to walk for European or for Middle Eastern miles in order to end Shabbat. It's not what it's all about. That's just a marker for how the sky appeared in that part of the world at that time. That's taking a principle that remains the same and adapting it to modern times. It's been further stated by many of our Moshe's students that the reason he did so is because he understood that the culture of America was different and that people were not accustomed to waiting as long as he did to end Shabbat. And it would simply be wrong of him to impose his waiting time upon others. The second example of Rav Moshe Feinstein that I would like to, to share with you this evening is quite fascinating. We're all aware that from a strict halachic Jewish perspective, um, spilling seed or semen, if I may, is only permissible within the context of a healthy sexual relationship. Outside of that, it is simply not permiss permissible according to law. But what happens when technology enters the picture and a couple that is uh, suffering from infertility issues, as my wife and I are, find themselves in a situation where if one's semen can be brought to a lab to be examined, maybe to be used to impregnate the woman, or maybe to unfortunately be determined that that semen simply is not going to cut it and will have to use a or maybe welcome using a donor semen if that were to be the case. By the way, in my case, it was, it was the former. You look at my son and he is undoubtedly mine. Unfortunately, I can never claim that my 26 year old son is not mine. I cannot say to my wife, he's your kid, not my kid. Doesn't work, you look at him, he's my son. But if it would not have been for Rav Moshe, nobody else would have touched it. So basically he took halacha and he said, you know what? Nowhere of course is in earlier halachic works, is it, certainly not in Talmudic ones, is it recorded that we can make an exception for spilling semen when it's not in the context of an actual physical relationship? I, Rav Moshe, am willing to make that exception. Okay, we will see this evening that this approach to halachic decision-making goes back and in a way begins with Hillel. A little bit more about Hillel, a little bit of a bio, in order for us to better understand him. I mentioned Shammai and Hillel earlier already um, in my words of introduction. 
Shammai and Hillel were contemporaries. They were both born at approximately the year 50 BCE, before the Common Era, and died in the year 30 CE. They both died at around age 80. They were surrounded by the Greco-Roman Weltanschauung. In other words, they lived in a culture which in many ways was antithetical to everything that they both stood for. And one of those areas, which is really antithetical to Judaism, and if you ask me, and I know this is the case, I shouldn't speak for him, he's also listening right here, but if you ask Rafshmuli, I know that he'll agree with me. We spoke, as he said, many, many times. And we correspond, how many times a week, Rafshmuli? And that is that this notion that I'm referring to of me, and it's all about me, and we really don't need to care about anybody else, and certainly don't need to care about the, the betterment or the welfare of the world at large, that's antithetical to Judaism, but it's also antithetical to what it means to be a human being. But it was part of the Greco-Roman the, the Greco, uh, culture. It's interesting to note that Shammai and Hillel, in so many ways, came from the same place, but eventually they grew into having diametric opposite diametrically opposing personalities and thereby diametrically opposing methods of not only their psak halacha, their halachic decision-making by how they interacted with others. We're all informed by our past and our upbringing plays a large role in who we become. So who is Hillel? And how did Hillel become Hillel Hazakain to be known as Hillel the Older? Now it's important to understand that this term, this honorific Hazakain, is rarely used. And it is really the highest honorific that can be used to describe somebody from the Talmudic times, the elder. Here's Rabbi, Rabbi. There are many other honorifics, but Hazakim is really second to none. And so how did Hillel become Hillel, Hillel? And then how did he become Hillel Hazakim? And so I would like to share with you two stories this evening. The first story is found in the Gemara Tractate Yoma, which is the tractate that deals with Yom Kippur. And I think it's instructive that this story is found in the tractate in Masechet Yoma, as opposed to any other tractate. It's, it's just a story together with several others. It could have been included elsewhere, but it's specifically, I believe, included in Masechet Yoma because of the theme of the day of Yom Kippur. And that is atonement and forgiveness, which can only transpire if we as individuals, when we are supplicating to God, are resolving to do a better job this coming year, a better job in all areas. And one of the two main areas, of course, is when it comes to Ben Adam meaning our interactions with other people, not only Ben Adam between our interactions with us and God. And here's the story. I'm just going to translate it into English. English is my own, um, simply because I will try to stick to the time frame of 40 minutes or so um, as well as possible. It is said about Hillel the older, Hillel Hazakain, that every single day, now this is when he was younger, before he was indeed Hillel Hazakain, he would make just enough money to get by. That's uh, paraphrasing. He would spend half of his money to pay the guard of the Beit Midrash of the study hall. I'll get back to that in a moment. And the other half he would use for, for the welfare and for the supporting of his family. Unfortunately, during this time, there was a guard in the Batein Midrash in the study halls, at least in most of them in that particular area, and one had to pay every single day in order to get in. You don't have the money? We don't want you here. So what happened? 
There was one day Hillel found himself in an unfortunate predicament that he did not have any money to go in. And so what did he do? He went and he sat on top of the Beit Midrash. It's a famous story, perhaps you are familiar with it. And he sat above a window, as it were, a closed window, of course, a sealed window, so that he would be able to hear and maybe see the words of Elohim Chaim, the words of the living God. It snowed that night. And in the morning, two great Torah scholars who are from the generation preceding Hillel and Shammai, known as Shemaya and Avtalion, noticed that it was dark. And Avtalion said to, said to Shema, excuse me, Shemaya said to Avtalion, he said, every day it's, it's light in the morning when the sun rises, but now it's cloudy. They looked up and they saw what, what appeared to be the form of a man. They went up to the rooftop and they saw this man, who of course we now know as Hillel, buried in three amot. Now an ama is a cubit. Some of you may be familiar with the old, um, I know he's gone down in infamy, but with the old uh, Bill Cosby routine, when God asks him to build an ark and he tells him how big it should be and he says, ah, God, what's a cubit? Well, the answer is a cubit is approximately in our measurements, at least in American measurements, anywhere between a foot and a half and, and, uh, and um, anywhere between a foot and a half and two feet. So three amot is a tremendous amount of snow, and it's obviously just a metaphor. He was completely covered in, in snow. They lowered him, they washed him off, they bathed him, and they sat him before a fire in order to thaw him out, and they restored him to life. That's the first story. That story tells us a little, little bit about not only the drive that Hillel had to learn Torah, but I think more importantly, we understand now that perhaps because of the way Hillel himself was treated by Shemaiah and Avtalion, how he then used that as a background, as a springboard, or how it informed him in terms of his treating of others. And in fact, we have another story, which is extremely important for all of us to keep in mind, not just rabbis as halachic decision-making, um, decision-makers in a community, but in addition to this, for every one of us in the way that we conduct ourselves towards others. And this is a shorter story, and the story tells us as follows. Ma'aseh, there's a ma'isa, there's a story. And it really is just a story after all. And I once heard from a great, great Talmudic scholar who's highly respected in the yeshiva world. And he asked the question, this question about stories in the Talmud. Did they, did all of them necessarily happen? And if they did, did they necessarily happen the way that they were recorded? No, not necessarily, doesn't matter. They don't tell those stories about me. They're telling this story about Hillel. And that's what matters. And this is the story about a guy, about a non-Jew who first came to Shammai. And he said to him, Gairani, convert me, but convert me on the condition that, I'm interrupting myself because a conversion that's based on a condition on the part of the potential convert is already problematic. That's already problem number one. Problem number two is the condition that he is imposing. And that is, Almanat on the condition that you teach me the entire Torah, literally that means when I'm standing on one foot. That very well may be a metaphor for teach me all of the Torah in a very short synopsis. Teach me the Torah with a snap of a fingers. Shammai's approach, and we mentioned before that Hilo and Shammai evolved into individuals who were diametrically opposed to one another in terms of their personality. Dichafo, he pushed him, pushed him out, with the beam of the building that was in his hand. Now, what was he doing with the beam of a building that was in his hand? I don't know. I'm not sure that, that, that I want to know, but 
he somehow had this beam in his hand and he used it to push this potential convert away. So he figured, okay, Shammai pushed me away. I want to convert. He left. So he came to the other. He came to Hillel. He loved the two things. Now, what's known mostly about this story when it's told is what Hillel responded, what his response was of al on one foot and what mitzvah he chose to respond with. But first, we're told, Gaire, he converted him. And to me, it seems like if this order is correct in terms of what transpired, he said, okay, he asked me to convert him. I'm assuming he's sincere. Maybe he tested him to see that he was sincere. Maybe the story actually took several different, uh, several different um, meetings over coffee and, and it was not just one very short meeting, but whatever the case may be, Kaire, he converted this guy that came to him with this very unique, very strange and problematic condition. And as I mentioned before, a condition as we know is also problematic when it comes to conversion. And then he said, okay, here is the entire Torah. You ready? You can do this while you're standing on one foot easily. Amarlo, he said to him, the Allah Sinei, this is Aramaic, what is hated by you, the Chavercha Lataavim. Do not do to your fellow human being. And then he added, this is the entire Torah, in case we were not clear of what Hillel's message was, the Idach Perushahi, and the rest of it is simply an explanation. Now it's your job. I already converted you. Now it's your job. Zil Gamar, go out and study the rest of the Torah. Now, if you think about it, there's so much here in this story. Rashi will use the word unpack, and that's exactly what we're going to do uh, to unpack. First of all, to unpack. First of all, implicit in this story, of course, is the message of not necessarily pushing people away just because they come to us with an absurd claim or an absurd request that maybe isn't even meant seriously and meant literally, but rather always to pay attention to the plight or situation of the other, whether it's one who wishes to convert, whether it's feeding the hungry, whether it's being there for others in times of need, whenever that need may be. I personally, and I'm not saying this to gloat, but I really do make it my business that if I receive a phone call, even at two o'clock in the morning from somebody who is in need, and I don't just mean when I was in the public rabbinate, which I'm no longer engaged in, but even today, when I'm living in Eretz Israel and not engaged as a public rabbi, if I receive a phone call in the middle of the night, if I can, I will be there for that person. After we hang up, they don't necessarily hear what I have to say on the other end, but I, I certainly do my best to be there for that person. That's very important. More importantly, though, Hillel is reminding us in his choosing of this mitzvah of the Allah Saneh, what is hated by you, which is really just um, an understanding or one understanding of the love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's teaching us that this is as important, if not more important, than any mitzvah than any mitzvah between man and his fellow man. Think about it. He knew he didn't have a lot of time. He had standing on one foot. He had the snap of the fingers. Okay, I'm going to choose one. Not Shabbat, not keeping kosher, not mikveh, the three that are considered to be biggies in terms of what determines if a person is considered at least in some form an halachic Jew. No, no, no. He chose treat others with proper respect and do not do unto others which you do not wish to be done to you. And he added that that is the entire Torah. And so from this one story about Hillel, we learned that to be a good Jew, it means to be a good person. Simply put, 
Some Yiddish words and phrases cannot be translated. One of them is a mensch. It means to be a Jew, excuse me, means to be a mensch. Ritual, Hillel is teaching us, I believe, is of course important. It's half. It's required of us, yes. But if we only engage in Bein Adam between man and God without treating others properly, then the ritual becomes completely and totally worthless. Okay. We're looking at, as you can see, the evolution of Hillel the person. But what we're going to see now is something fascinating, and that is his approach to halacha, meaning his approach to mitzvot bein adam lamakom between man and God. And a, a perfect example would be the two, the two that we brought earlier, two perfect examples from Rav Moshe Feinstein in the Lower East Side of New York. What time I end Shabbat doesn't necessarily, and make Abdallah in my own home, doesn't necessarily impact my neighbor. It certainly doesn't impact somebody who is even a mile away. And what I do in my private life in order to be able to have children has absolutely nothing to do with anybody else. And yet, let's see where Hillel goes in this direction. In other words, with regard to mitzvot ben adam lamakom, between man and God, and how his previous life, and these two stories that we saw, the story of him as a student on the roof and the story of later on in his life, when he was already known as Hillel Hazakain and the way that he was willing to convert and to take in this other, this other potential convert and fulfill his absurd, seemingly absurd request with one statement and that statement that he chose. And so we will see how Hillel evolved into one of the greatest post-scheme halachic decisors of all time, of course, and how this even was used by him, was utilized in his approach to mitzvot between man and God. There are hundreds, to be sure, of disputes between Hillel and Shammai. Hundreds, not that many between the two individuals. Most are between what is referred to as a school of Beit Shammai, the house, meaning the study, or the yeshiva, if you were, colloquially, of Shammai, and the yeshiva of Hillel. But nonetheless, only 18 of them are in accordance with Shammai and not Hillel. By some counting, maybe it's 19, maybe it's 21, but it's approximately, that's the accepted number, 18 of them are not in accordance with Hillel. All of the others were. There are several reasons for that. One is what we mentioned already about Hillel, and that is the personality that he had as opposed to, diametrically opposed to Shammai's personality that we saw in the story um, about converting. But there's more. Hillel was known that when he was asked a question about halacha, about Jewish law, to present opposing views, to present them first to mention his own view, and then to say that this is what I feel the halacha is, that the halacha is according to the view that I ended with. But he presented both sides of the story. In addition, it was known that Hillel was a person who was willing to change his mind to sometimes concede to Shammai or just in general to revisit a psak halacha, a halachic decision that he had made earlier and that was publicly known and for him to simply stand up and to say, I was wrong. I reconsidered, I misunderstood or perhaps the circumstances have changed and I was just wrong. Those are two other aspects of Hillel that um, perhaps led towards the halacha becoming decided in favor of Hillel as opposed to Shammai the overwhelming majority of the time. And so I'd like to give to you two examples 
of what I mean by Hillel using this approach of concern for others with regard to mitzvot that are ben adam la'makod between man and God. The first is with regard to the recitation of Kiddush on Shabbat. Now, we all know how Kiddush is recited on Shabbat. In other words, on some level, we're all familiar with the text. We're holding the kos, the cup in our hand, the goblet in our hand, and the first bracha, of course, is the blessing over wine. The same blessing that I would recite over wine if I were to have a glass of wine tonight, after, not during, I promise, after uh, tonight's webinar, okay? The second blessing is the longer blessing, and that's the bracha that's really the kiddush. It's referred to in the Mishnah as the bracha on the yom, on the day, because that's the bracha in which we sanctify the day of Shabbat, in which we glorify Shabbat. We talk about its origins, its remembrance for the Exodus. It's also a remembrance for Bereshit, for the creation of the world. And we end with, of course, Baruch Atah Hashem, Mikadesh HaShabbat. You, God, are the one who sanctifies the Shabbat. That's the order. That's the universal order. Well, it wasn't always universal order. Don't believe me? Ask Shammai. And he'll tell you that I'm wrong. And he'll tell you that you're wrong. And he'll tell you that Hillel's wrong. And Shammai will tell you, no, 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 no. And this is recorded in the Mishnah. I, you, you cannot make this up. The order is the long bracha at Kiddush first, and then the bracha on the wine. And his reasoning is sound. It's logical. Why? Because if I have a glass of wine tonight, I'm having a glass of wine just because I want to have a glass of wine. So it makes sense to say the bracha over that glass of wine. Same for eating an apple. Um, Rav Shmuley, in your honor, I will not say same for eating the, the chicken uh, schnitzel that I had earlier tonight. I'm not going to mention that. Okay, so same for, same, same, for, same for the side dish of the rice and the apple that I had on the side. Okay, good. Now, in addition to, in addition to that, explain Shammai. Tonight or tomorrow, meaning on Shabbat, it's different. The reason we have that cup of wine is because it's Shabbat. The way that he puts it is, it is the day and the sanctification of that day that causes us, in other words, the ritual by which we sanctify the day is with a glass of wine. I'm not necessarily having that glass of wine, or in my case, grape juice, because I, I use grape juice for Kiddush and then have good wine during the course of the meal. But it, it, I'm not having the glass of wine because I feel like having wine now, necessarily. I'm having a glass of wine because it's part of the ritual of sanctifying the Shabbat. But the action is the sanctification. It causes the wine to be brought to the first. And Hillel says no. Hillel's reasoning is, It is the wine that enables the Kiddush. It's the enabler. You don't have wine, you can't recite Kiddush. I mean, you can, but the second best. You recite it over the challah, over the bread. And if you don't have bread, then you don't recite, then you do recite it without anything. But in any event, at the best case scenario is you have wine or grape juice available. You recite it over the wine. The wine is the enabler. And since the wine is the enabler, it comes first. Now that's the reason recorded in the Mishnah. But the Mishnah, with the exception of Kirkeavot, Ethics of Our Fathers, is a work of halakha. And so the Mishnah is only interested in the strictest halachic, strict halachic reasons of Shammai and Hillel. And essentially, we're presented here with two opposing um, views from a logical perspective. They're both logical. Which causes the other? Which one enables the other? 
They're both logical approaches, and yet the universally accepted practice, and as is in our title, but I believe, and it's not the place of the Mishnah to get into this, that there's a lot more going into to unpack that is implicit in Hillel's view regarding the order of the Bachot of Kiddush. Again, this cup of wine is right in front of you. You're holding it in your hand. And while it's, and it is true, excuse me, that we always recite a bracha on a food that we are about to partake of or a drink that we are about to imbibe on, and you recite the bracha immediately beforehand. And Hillel is not about to change that now. And why? Because I believe he's telling us something else here too. And that is that it's as if the wine is screaming at you. Uh, hello, look at me. What about me? You poured me, you're holding me, and I'm assuming you're going to make a blessing on me and then drink me, and then you're, you're going ahead and you're basically just going off on a tangent and making another bracha altogether? What's the matter with you? How could you do such a thing to me? Now, we know the wine doesn't have any feelings, and we'll get back to that, but there is an actual halacha that is recorded on the books for this reason, and that is that there are three reasons that are given for why we cover the challah, why we cover the bread, before we use it on Shabbat. You don't do that the rest of the week. And one of the reasons of the three that are brought is to not embarrass the bread. How so? Normally during the week, at least in those days, when one began a meal, they began it with bread. Bread was the mainstay. And so the meal was begun with bread. And so again, the bread is expecting for its bracha, hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz, who produces bread from the ground, to be the first bracha that's recited. And now tonight you're reciting the bracha, the kiddush on the wine first. Okay, cover the bread just like Hillel was covered with snow, cover the bread so that it doesn't hear, so that it doesn't witness what is going on with the wine. Only once we're done with the wine, now we can recite the bracha on the bread. The bread was never the wiser as to what was transpiring. Obviously, none of that is meant literally. And there are several other examples, but the time is a little bit uh, short here. So I'm not going to give other examples of how this very notion comes into play in halacha as well. And of course, as I mentioned, wine cannot be insulted. But Hill's approach, even to ritual, is that ritual too can and must be, and this is the point, be a springboard for us as to how we are to behave vis-a-vis -vis others. In other words, if we are to be sensitive to the needs of the wine, then of course we are to be sensitive to the needs of the other. And if you're in the middle of a conversation with your friend, you don't suddenly divert, if at all possible, into having another conversation with somebody else in the room. And if you're together out with your friend and you run into a third old friend and you say hello, then of course, by definition, one goes out of their way, should really be going out of their way, introduce the friend that you're with rather than leaving them hanging there and feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Don't ignore that wine, a metaphor for another person that is there and that is present with you. In short, we have to consider the feelings of others. The second mitzvah is the more known, uh, at least in terms of the debate, in terms of the machloket uh, between Shammai and Hillel, and that relates to our lighting of Hanukkah candles. We all know that we light, and not including the shamash, the, the lighter candle, which actually has a different purpose beyond just lighting, but we all know that on the first night of Hanukkah, we light one candle, we ascend each night, we light two the second night, until finally we light eight lights on the eighth night of Hanukkah. That is the universal practice. There is no other practice that is acceptable. Excuse me, please. My apology. But that too, like the Kiddush, did not begin that way. The Gemara in the Sechet Shabbat, in Tractate Shabbat, 
tells us that Beit Shammai is of the opinion that we begin with eight candles the first night, seven in the second night, decreasing in number until we light only one the last night. And Beit Hillel takes the opposite approach, which is the approach that is taken by the entire world, that we light one the first night and we ascend in number, lighting two the second night, and of course, eight the last night. Beit Shammai, we descend. Beit Hillel, we Beit Shammai, we descend in number. Beit Hillel, we ascend in number. The reasoning given for Beit Shammai is fascinating. And it seems to me correct. And that is, we have two options. One is for the number to remain constant, to light one candle each night. And indeed, the Gemara says that that is the mitzvah, for one person and only one person to light one candle each night. You want to do better than that? Okay, good. Then represent what, number one, the number of people in the household, and number two, what night of Hanukkah it is. So that the world will know, hey, tonight's the fourth or the fifth or the sixth or the eighth night of Hanukkah. That's better than just one. So one way to perform the mitzvah is to choose a constant number. We'll call that one candle each night. The other way is either to ascend or to descend. Shammai's reasoning is, okay, let's look in the Torah and let's see if in the Torah we can find another example where a number either ascends or descends from day to day. And if it's works in the Torah, then it should work for us too. When it comes to rabbinically ordaining a mitzvah, we probably are required to follow the same pattern. And Shammai basically said, I found it. When it comes to the korban musaf, the sacrificial, the additional sacrificial offering of the holiday of Sukkot and only of Sukkot, on the first day, there was a certain amount of bulls that were brought in addition to other animals. On the second day, one less. On the third day, one, even one fewer, decreasing in number all the way down to the last day of Sukkot. We're not going to get now into animal sacrifices. That is completely off the subject. And it is certainly difficult, I would imagine, for most people, when they think about it, to, to relate to in our times, including whether or not there will be animals in, God willing, the third and final Beit HaMikdash. That's for another time. Um, but in any event, the number was decreasing. And so Shammai's reasoning is, okay, good. So we'll decrease in number here too when it comes to Hanukkah. There's also more there in the way of history because that year when they restored the Mikdash, the, um, the, the Hasmoneans, the Hashmonaim, the Maccabees, um, as they're also known, um, actually celebrated the holiday of Sukkot because a few months prior they were not able to, so we're connecting the two together. Okay, we're not going to get into that now. But his reasoning is sound and his reasoning makes sense and his reasoning even seems to be required of us. Comes along Beit Hilal, according to the Gemara, and says, yeah, but there's an overriding principle here. And that principle is ma'alim ba'kodesh ve'emoridim, which is usually translated as we ascend, here we go again with ascending and descending, we ascend or we increase when it comes to matters of kodesh, when it comes to matters of holiness, ve'emoridim, we do not decrease. So it begs the question, if Shammai's reasoning is sound, and if Shammai's reasoning relates directly to what we're doing, and also is the reasoning that relates to another holiday, the biblical holiday of Sukkot. And the general principle of we ascend in Kodesh in matters of holiness and do not descend. Ma'alim ba'kodesh ve'en does not relate to any specific holiday. It is not generic to our discussion. So then why did Hillel feel so strongly that his reasoning was correct? And why is Alachalik Beit Hillel in this particular in this particular instance, when it comes to the way we light Hanukkah candles? And I believe the answer is, and I alluded to this before, in the complete 
and total mistranslation of the words ma'alin ha'kodesh ve'en that we ascend and we do not dare descend. That's not how you say ascend and descend in Hebrew or in Aramaic. The proper word for ascend, the same root word, is olim. We ascend or we rise or we go up. And the proper word for descend, we descend, is yoridim. We go down. But that's not the principle. The principle is not olim, it's ma'alim. And ma'alim does not mean only that we go up, that we ascend. It means we bring others along with us. And that's the catch. The word ma'alim does not mean to rise, it means to raise. And the word moedim does not mean to go down simply by oneself. It means to bring others down with you. If you go down, if you lower yourself in your sanctity, then you risk lowering others as well. And if we ascend, if we rise in our sanctity, exemplified by the lighting of the Hanukkah candles, then it is our responsibility to bring others along with us for the ride. So I believe that Hillel is the party to us, that the whole point of lighting Hanukkah candles in the window, the whole point of Pirsume Nisa, of publicizing the miracle beyond exactly that, is to show the world that we are taking them, the outsiders that are viewing the, the Hanukkah candles on the ride with us. If I use near Hanukkah, if I use any ritual that is strictly between man and God as a means to elevate my own holiness, I didn't accomplish anything. I've missed the point. Hanukkah candles, according to Behilel's reason, remind us that we must, in the performance of all mitzvot, it doesn't matter if those are mitzvot between man and man or between man and God, that all of them must be used to elevate others as well as ourselves. We must, as Jews, as humans, and as humanitarians. And being a Jew means being a humanitarian first. You don't believe me? Let's go back to the story, the second story that we started with. What did Hillel say to the converts? The only mitzvah that you need to know right now is what is hated by you, do not do unto others. That's it. Everything else is simply icing on the cake. So the general rule to recap is we follow Hillel. We follow Hillel not just in our own performance of ritual mitzvot. We follow Hillel, those of us that are in the business of decision-making as rabbis, but it is for all of us as individuals to follow his approach in our interactions with others, to use every opportunity we are blessed with, every single one, to treat others ethically, to treat others the way that we wish to be treated, to see the plight of others and to release them from that plight in any way that we can, and through all of the above, to thereby be ma'alin, to raise them along with us and to bring them up when they are down. We must always be mindful, never forget, that there were two tablets of stone um, and not just one. The old, the old joke, um, it's, a, it's a Jewish joke, it's, it's poking fun at Jews, but I'm a Jew, so I, I can use this joke and I'm just going to shorten it. And that is very simply that, very simply that um, God said to Moses, I have here a tablet of stone for you. And Moses responded, well, how much does it cost as a Jew? And God said, cost, it's free. In which case Moses said, okay, in that case, I'll take two. But in any event, the first one of those tablets 
Um, Eddie, I see you like that. The first one of those tablets is Ben Adam Lamakom. It is almost strictly mitzvah between man and God. But it's the second one that's Ben Adam that is between man and his friend. And let's never forget the dictum of Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, that tells us that acharon, acharon rabid, a principle we're all familiar with. Sometimes we save the best for last. Well, in this case, of the two tablets, the best I believe is saved for the last. And that is Ben Adam interactions between man and his fellow man. And so we must internalize, in short, as did Hillel, that the second tablet of stone serves to inform the first, and the first serves to inform the second. Let us all strive then to learn from and to be like Hillel, the student, and later on in his life, in his approach to how he treated others in turn for the way that he was treated, as Hillel has attained to behave just like him, as Hillel the older. In short, and really to simply summarize with one verse, everything that we said tonight, it's the verse in the book of Micha, in the book of Micah, in the Tanakh, in the Bible, that tells us as follows. Uma Hashem what does God seek from you? What does God really want? You know what he wants? And this is really all he wants. You can accomplish it in different ways. You can go about it maybe by observing Shabbat, but this is what God wants. Ki'im only asot mishpat to engage in justice, the avat chesed, and a love of chesed, a love of kindness. In other words, simply being the best ethical human beings that we can be, that's ne'alechet, and in that manner to go quietly and humbly im elokecha together with God. Thank you all again, and my thanks once again to Rashmuli and to Eddie for arranging uh, for this webinar for tonight. And I believe now uh, the floor will be open to any questions or to any comments um, that any of you may have. Amazing, yes. Uh, we'll take questions from those in the group and those on Facebook Live. And this was an amazing presentation, Ravavi. So thank you so much, very inspiring. Uh, who wants to jump in? Who wants to jump in here with a question? Yes, Ravuri. Shkoyach Ravavi, thank you so much for this beautiful presentation. I was typing notes the whole time, so if it looked like I was doing something else, it's because I was trying to capture your essence. Um, okay. And with your permission, I hope to share over some ideas at my shul this Shabbat in Rockville, Maryland. Um, one of the things that I've been wrestling with um, is a little bit of a debate that's been going on in the modern Orthodox community in America currently um, around the rise of uh, COVID-19 WhatsApp sock. Yeah. Um, because right now people have been looking to Gedolim to answer their questions. And so they're, you know, it's a quick way to get answers out to everybody. Um, but the problem, of course, is that it, it takes away from the ability of the rabbis to keep, like Hillel would put, um, you're saying, like put the person, the cup of wine right in front of him. Yeah. The congregant is no longer in front of the rabbi, right? The answers are being paskined on high by the Rosh Hashiva. Yes. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts about a healthy way to create sock um, for our times, um, sort of applying these principles in our communities today, um, especially in times of crisis, but, you know, uh, in other times as well. Okay. Um, I'm going to um, just introduce my response by mentioning that as I said earlier, and as you already know, I am not in the business now of being a public rabbi. I don't, I don't claim to be. Um, 
in some ways, I actually wish I were during this most challenging of times and unique of times um, during COVID-19, whether it would be here in Eretz Israel or in the United States. And by the way, Uri, it's nice to, to not meet you in person, but at least to see you face-to-face. -face. We've, of course, conversed many times um, on the internet uh, through Torah Chaim and I think other venues too, but it's great to meet you in person. And thank you for your kind words. I think the key lies in, um, number one, when it comes to relying on other poskim, the great halachic sizes of the time, whatever school they're from, whether they're from the more yeshivish world, one may call it the Haredi world if they wish, whether it's from the more modern Orthodox, centrist Orthodox, um, open Orthodox, whatever the world may, open Orthodox world, whatever the world may be, is that is each time that any of them issue a psak in writing on Zoom, whatever the venue may be, is to add, however, you do need to speak to your local halachic authorities, whether it's your rabbi, whoever that may be. Now, nobody's going to listen to Herzog, but I do think that that approach is important. And I, by the way, I do think, and I know that, Raburi, you will agree with me. I just can only tell by the smile on your face, even though I don't know you well, personally, of course, I know you at all personally, and that is that even as a rabbi in one community, you might want to say to others, depending on the context, that what I'm telling you today applies right here in Rockville, Maryland. It doesn't mean that it applies elsewhere necessarily. It applies in our situation. I think, though, that to really get to your question, terms of what we can do, and that is in any way we can, whether it's on Zoom, whether it's in person, if one is in a position to do that, to meet with members of the congregation and to say to them as a rabbi, in other words, this is what I have gleaned. What is halachically um, advisable or maybe acceptable or should be done in these particular situations? There's always room this is what we're saying as a rabbi, maybe, or to, to each other at a meeting, like any show meeting, right? There's always room, however, to hear what others have to say, how others feel, and then to, um, to then decide how to proceed from there. So I, I'm sure that, that I would imagine that on some level, that's something that you're doing already, but that is to be able to actually meet with and to talk to people face-to-face. -face. And in any community, we're still, the only communication is by phone because people are not getting together in groups then, or Zoom, whatever that may be, then it, it, indeed just that. So um, there may be other questions and comments. I just want to mention a very, very quick story. I'll mention it very quickly anyway. And that is that there was one couple that was going to be spending time in Eretz Israel. This is many years ago. They were coming for one of the Chagim, one of the holidays. And they wanted to know, do we keep one day of Yom Tov like we do in Israel, two days of Yom Tov? I understood from talking to them, and this is Rabbi's point. I could only have understood this from talking to them. What they were basically saying to me was, Rabbi Avi, we got a problem here. I, the husband, am going to keep one day. My wife is going to keep two days, period. Help us. We're not changing. Help us. I sat with them. We went through the entire sugya, as it's called, the entire topic from A to Z. We spent about two hours together. And then I said to them, you're adults. You each decide to do what you decide to do, hopefully to do together as a couple, or at least to respect each other's wishes. But now you have the tools. I think that's key. Um, and I think that's, that's really the key to the answer to your question, is simply to be there for others, for others to hear what each others have to say about these matters, before actually coming down with a specific sign. Did that help? Okay. Okay, who else has a question here or in the Facebook Live? I promise my other answers will be shorter. Okay, I have, I have a question. Um, I, I, it's, it's obviously an oversimplification to call 
Beit Hillel inclusive and Beit Shammai exclusive. There's more to it, um, but it's 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 fair. Um, or that um, Beit Hillel is more makel and um, and Beit Shammai more machmir. That one is more uh, lenient and one is more stringent. But um, I wonder, do you think these orientations should become should evolve with the moment and the time, or do you think th that this should be a general orientation to decision-making in matters, right? Do you think we should, in general, have an orientation towards inclusivity, in general, towards, uh, towards being more permissive? Okay, I think that's, that's obviously a very good question. And of course, on some level, it can be a loaded question as well. Um, and so without going into any specific examples, I think it's probably the best way to address this right now this evening. And thank you, Ashmoli, uh, for that question. I, I do think it's important that, um, that one generally, that we all generally follow um, one particular approach, and that is to be inclus as inclusive as, um, as permits us. Now by permits us, I mean several different factors and variables. Those factors can be the time in which we're living, as Rav Moshe Feinstein addressed. Those factors can be the community in which we're living. Those factors can be um, the, the culture in which we're living. And remember, what is considered to be a nice hand, gest hand gesture in certain communities can end you up in jail um, in other countries where you're simply not familiar with their hand gestures because they're taken to be a tremendous insult. Um, and the, the same thing, of course, is true when it comes to when it comes to uh, when it comes to psak halacha or when it comes to observance of halacha, and I think that's really what Moshe was saying. And if I may, just to give an example from Moshe Feinstein, he has I think four chivot, four responses, back back in his great work. He wrote Moshe literally the letters of Moses, meaning himself, of the height of a mechitza, the height of a partition, a partition in the Beit Knesset, and each one of them he comes down with a different answer. Well, that can't be. Well, yeah, it can. Because that tiny little man sitting on the Lower East Side of New York, he understood the audience, the, the rabbi that was addressing him, the pressing need, why he was asking, and also the particular community that that rabbi was representing, his own particular kila, his own particular congregation. So of course, I, Moses Feinstein, I have my base, I have my bottom limit for the height of a mechitza. But in your case, I suggest it should be this height. In your case, I suggest it should be this height. Or in a specific case that I'm thinking of, that is very dear to me. In your case, in a private letter, Moshe Feinstein wrote, wrote to a prominent American rabbi um, a few decades ago, your mechitza only needs to be this height. I suggest you raise it to this height because otherwise you're gonna lose your job. So just do it. Swallow your pride and just do it. There are so many considerations that one must look at, but at the same time, I believe when the needs allow for it, one must be, yes, like Hillel, one must be as inclusive as possible um, in every area. I, I do think that's the approach that one should take, and I try for that to be about the approach that I take. Okay, did I answer your question? Yeah, amazing, amazing. And we're right here at time. I'm sure there's many other questions, but we thank you so much for this amazing Torah, straight from Eretz Yisrael, what we need these days. We, we need Torah trickling out, trickling down. Uh, I, I'm not. I'm not in support of trickle down economics, but that's another matter. But Torah, <laughs> Torah trickling down from uh, Eretz Yisrael will take all the time. Thank you so much. More opportunities to learn from Rav Avi and Rav Uri, and great to see everyone here. And and uh, Mrs. Hadassah Hadassa Herzog, great to have you here with us as well.
uh, have, have a wonderful uh, day or night wherever you are. And if I could just mention very, very quickly before we go, am I still on? Yes, Number you one, are. Hi, ma'am. Number two, <laughs> Number two, Rav Shmuley, back at you. Eretz Yisrael, I've told this before, needs you, could use you, and all of you. So if you want to have that same feeling of sharing Torah from Eretz Yisrael, I have a bedroom waiting for you, and I can find an apartment for your family. Well, oh, okay. oh, oh, we're going to take you up on that. I think we're all going to take you up on that. Okay, you're going to have Please the whole do. group here. The whole Hebra is coming. <laughs> Okay. Okay. To all the best to all of us to all of us. Let's all stay healthy and continue to have the opportunities to share Torah together. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day. Great. Bye -bye. One o'clock tomorrow here at Erlitzedek, Rabbi Micha Unheimer. Hope you'll join us.